0: Well, I feel like I should introduce myself. My name's Scott Reebley. I've, uh, <laughs> I've been the I've been lead pastor here for 26 years, but I haven't been here for about a month and a half and am uh, just really happy to be back. So, anyway, that's it's good to see you. Some of you for the first time, some of you for years and years. But this morning, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 52. It's our privilege to study God's Word and to look at the the hymnal of the Bible, the book of Psalms, and this morning we will be looking at Psalm 52. As you're turning there, I want to admit that I have a couple problems, okay? Okay. You think I'm not supposed to have any problems. I think I'm not supposed to have any problems too. But I have some. Okay, I namely have two. One of my problems is that bad things happen to good people. For me, that's a problem. I don't want that to happen. I don't think it should happen. It's even a worse problem when it happens to me. But when bad things happen to good people, that's a problem. It's a problem for me also, though, when... Good things happen to bad people. I don't know if you've thought about that, but that's not supposed to happen either. It does make more sense to me that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and they happen rather immediately without any variation so that I know that when I trust in the Lord, good things are going to happen. I don't have to worry about it. In the prospect that my circumstances don't always agree with my faith, that's a problem for me. You know, so if you put those two problems together, if you put those two problems together, you realize that circumstances don't really reinforce your faith very often. And it's a problem when that happens. The good news is that I'm not the first person to notice the problem. And, you know, neither are you. This has been a problem for the people of God from the very beginning. Because, you know, thankfully, God does not strike with lightning every person that sins or makes a mistake. Okay, that would be... We would not have any population density problems were that the case. Nor does He bless and make rich everyone that does believe and make their lives easy and smooth. So those things just don't happen and the disconnect between my faith and my circumstances is the thing that causes me the biggest crisis when I really seriously think about it. Now, that said, that has been a problem for others as well. It's been a problem for, among other people, King David. And his problems were worse than my problems. Okay, The bad things that happened to him as a good person, were those were worse. And the good things that happened to the bad people in his life, those were better and less deserved. And so his problem is even bigger than my problem. And the, the introduction or the superscription of this, this psalm tells us what that problem is. It says, to the choirmaster, Like Taylor said, this is, a, this is a hymn for the people of God. It is a mascal or a song of David that's meant to instruct. When Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Himelech. And that's kind of all we got. So at the time, or probably shortly after, uh, Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul that David's in the house of Amalek. David sat down and rehearsed all of the things that were involved uh, in that episode in his life, and he wrote this poem. He wrote this song. Now, it's important then for you to kind of uh, have an idea what um, it was like for David when Dog the Edomite told Saul that. So, in First Samuel chapter 21, um, David has been fleeing from Saul. David was an anointed king. God had said, you will be king. And Saul was the current king. And Saul knew that David had been anointed and that God had, his hand was on him. And so he was trying to kill David. And he had been pursuing David, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure how long, but for uh, months. And David was running from cave to cave, hiding from Saul. And as he was hiding from Saul and running, he came to a place a town called Nob that was the home to the priests. And he and his men were starving, and he said, do you have any bread? And Himelech was the chief priest, the one who was in charge. And he said, we don't have any regular bread, but we have the special bread. We have the bread of the presence of bread that is part of the ceremony uh, for God. We can give you that. Okay? Probably wasn't supposed to give him that, but that's all he had, so he gave it to David. And then, right then, it stops in First Samuel, as it tells us his story. And it says, And Doeg the Edomite, the chief herdsman of Saul, was detained by the Lord there. And then it goes on, telling us that David needed a weapon. And so he asked for a weapon. And, of course, he's a priest. He doesn't have a weapon. Except for the one that's sort of in the museum. He has Goliath's sword. So the sword to end all swords, he has. And he gives that to David. And so David goes out, having eaten this bread with the sword of Goliath. And it goes on and David went to the Philistines and um... but it's interesting that the story stops and it tells us that you're going to need to know dog the Edomite chief herdsman of Saul was attained by the Lord there. In other words, it's not outside of God's interest that dog the Edomite was there. It's not an accident that he was there. He was there detained by the Lord. Well, the story continues. And King Saul is underneath a tree at the top of a hill. And he's feeling sorry for himself. In fact, he, the text records him saying, Don't any of you feel sorry for me? That no one tells me that my own son is on David's side. Don't any of you feel sorry for me that David is having all the success, and I'm not. Can he? can he give you cities? Can he make you can he make you the officer over hundreds and thousands like I can? Everyone's kind of quiet. Dog the Edomite was there, and he says, "Saul?" David was last seen at the house of Ahimelech in Nob. And immediately Saul calls for Ahimelech to come. He stands before Saul and Saul says, What are you doing helping my enemy? To which Ahimelech says, Saul, first thing you need to know, no one has ever been a more loyal subject to you than David has. So I've done nothing wrong. And this is not the first time that I've called on the Lord on His behalf. I do that regularly. So there is no offense here. Saul, the king, the one who is, knows he's losing his kingdom, said that doesn't matter off of his head. And he ordered the execution of Himalek. And everyone in the court listening to this dialogue, sat there with their hands in their pockets. We're not going to kill the priests. And none of them did. Until finally Saul turned to Dog and said, You execute them. And he did. And he rose and he killed Ahimelech and he killed all his house. And he killed the entire town of priests. Eighty-five people in all. Slaughtered them. I mean, when, when you're saying that bad things happen to good people, you're not supposed to do that to the priests. Okay? And why did he do it? Because he was offered a higher position, better pay, you know, some prestige in the house of Saul. Good things were not supposed to happen to a bad person like Dog. Well, it turns out that the son of Ahimelech escaped to tell David that, yes, in fact, David, um, my whole family was killed. My whole town was killed. I've only escaped, it's only me. And David said, When Dog the Edomite was there, I knew there would be trouble. But the one who searches for you, one who's after you, is after me also. Join us, and you'll be safe here. And that's sort of the end of the story. But it's right after that, that I imagine, anyway, that David sat perhaps in another cave, right? And reflected on all of that and wrote Psalm 52. When he said, how can this be? How can such a bad thing happen to those good people? And how can such a good thing happen to a bad person like that? And that sets him up to consider what the problem is for all of us as we try and be people of faith. What is it going to take for us to actually believe in the promise and love of God when our circumstances tell us that we shouldn't? And what you're going to see, I think, is that the steadfast love of God guarantees the downfall of the evil person in the flourishing of the man of faith or the woman of faith. That in fact, it is the steadfast love of God that makes the difference. His covenant love. His promise to love you no matter what. So that's, that's what we see here in the first verse as we read it. He says, Why do you boast of evil, O mighty God? Man, the steadfast love of God endures forever. Okay? These two things do not go together. This is the problem. Why do you boast of evil, O oh mighty man? So he has in mind here, I think, what he's just experienced with Dog and, and probably behind Doeg, the mighty man of Saul. So he sees both of them. It's as though Doeg is the one around the campfire, but the, but the campfire casts this bigger shadow on the tent. And that bigger shadow is Saul. Because behind, behind all of these actions is a betrayal and the hatred of King Saul. And he says, why do you boast, so mighty man? Looks like you're successful. Looks like you're um, doing great. Okay. Pause. Stop. The other thing you need to keep in mind, as well as that, is the steadfast love of God endures all the day. The steadfast love of God endures all the day, even when there's a mighty man boasting of evil. That's the problem. So, the steadfast love of, the, of God is the theme of this psalm. That's why he puts them together. It's a theme of the psalm when bad things are happening. It's the theme of the psalm when you can't figure out how you can hold on to faith when your world is crumbling around you. The steadfast love or the hesed, that's how you say it in Hebrew. It's a good word. There's no real great translation, but it's the covenant love, the promise to love you promised to love His people. That's what it is. And there's no other English word quite like it. That's what this word is. The chesed of God endures forever. It is not compromised when bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people. God's love endures. And that's the tension that He's expressing In the Psalm. So this is sort of the theme, um, verse there. And then he says, Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. So the first issue that he has with Doeg, who is the reporter who came and told Saul everything, that's, the first thing is the words betray. The problem. Words betray what's in his heart. So you can tell, you can tell about a person by what, by the way that they talk. Because out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, according to Jesus. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. And then he admits the same thing that Jesus said. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You, You have a heart problem here. You have a love. For wrong and for evil more than speaking what's right. Selah. Okay, selah is just a musical term that says pause and re- pause and reflect on those things. Stop and think about it. So stop and think about what you've just seen. You've got this evil person boasting in what he's accomplished, what he's done, the fact that he's king, and good things are happening to him. And you've got the good people who are killed. David, who's a good king, who's king, uh, elect or king anointed, is, he is, uh, fleeing for his life. Bad things are happening to good people. Okay? Stop and think about that. Stop and think about the pressure that that puts on you in, to, to believe. Because it's not easy. Okay? Then, he, he picks it up again. And he says, you need to think about this. You love all the words that devour, O oh, deceitful tongue. So he's going right at him and saying, again, you're talking out of school, you're saying things you shouldn't say, you're deceitful and evil in your words. And he says, God will break you down forever. He will snatch you and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Salah. So don't forget to think about that too. Don't forget to think about and contemplate the end of the wicked. The end, the final uh, beyond death end of the wicked. God will break them down. He will snatch them away from their tent and uproot them from the land of the living. They will die and face judgment. Now, as you're thinking about this, you're also thinking about the fact that, why hasn't it happened yet? Why the delay? This is, God's supposed to take care of this, and He hasn't. And here I am, I'm trying to believe Him, and it doesn't look right. You're to realize that the final final, um, line of the story has not yet been written. See, that's some some of our problem is we, we have this very small frame of reference where it looks really bad. When in the grand story, it's going to turn out just fine and God's going to win. And you're to stop and realize that yes, in fact, in this small part of the story, God doesn't appear to be winning. But as the story unfolds, God's victory is guaranteed. And that's what he's doing as he's meditating, as he's thinking about this. He says, Say, stop. Don't let yourself be deceived by the small part of the story that you see. Then he goes a little farther and he says, The righteous shall see this in fear and shall laugh at him saying see the man who would not make god his refuge but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction you're supposed to read this with a smile on your face right it says the righteous shall see And fear and laugh at him. You're also serious. You are to be serious, right? The righteous are going to see and they're going to fear. What are they going to fear? They're going to recognize that, yes, they're struggling with the smallest sliver of the story when, in fact, God is still God. When, in fact, the creator of the universe is still in charge. Even though, in the small sliver, it looks like he's not, and then people who make decisions based on the small sliver of the story make the wrong decision, and it turns out, well, ironic to say the least. I mean, think about what he's talking about here. What, it, what it, for him is laughable, and if if you're familiar at all with the story of Saul and David, it's a great read in First Samuel. So I encourage you just go ahead and read it. If you're looking for just great literature to read to enjoy a good story, this is it. Because the conflict is, is crazy and the movement is wonderful and God does win. But, for God to win, David wins and Saul loses. Okay, I'm just simple as I can make it, right? And what's happened is that Dog the Edomite Puts his money on Saul. He says, I am betting on Saul. Which is, in retrospect, pretty silly. In retrospect, makes me kind of smile, like, oh, I feel sorry for you. Righteous shall fear and laugh at him because it is. It is really ironic that you can say I am going, based on my little bit of evidence here, I'm going to place my, all my chips on Saul when in fact, God has placed His chips on David. If I can use that metaphor with God, I don't know. See, the man who would not make God his refuge. But trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Saul had promised uh, dog, and anybody else who would be loyal to him, you know, uh, cities and positions and riches. He had made all of that promise. And the ironic thing is, it did not come about and it didn't last. And that's what made the righteous laugh. But, David says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. You see, this is this is so characteristic of the book of Psalms. I am like a green olive tree in the house of God throws us all the way back to Psalm chapter one. Psalm chapter one tells us that there are two ways. Blessed is a man. Who does not walk in the counsel of the godly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law I meditate day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in its season. His leaf also shall not wither, and everything he does will prosper. See, David, what David's doing is David's recalling for us the very initial idea that's in the book of Psalms is that there are two ways. And you can choose either way. He said, Me, I'm choosing the steadfast love of God. And I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I mean, an olive tree, an olive tree could last hundreds if not a thousand years. And here he is flourishing In the presence of God. That's that's a reference for house of God. It's just God is present here and I am flourishing. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And so his confession is That in spite of the circumstances, in spite of all of the things that are happening to him because Saul is pursuing him, because he's promoted Doeg, because he's given him money, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's saying, I am going to trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And that's the end. The thing about that, that's what his decision has to be. That's what your decision has to be. Right? You can say, I've got this small sliver in life of circumstances, and oh, it's not very good, so God must not love me. Okay? I would not go there if I were you. That's, that kind of talking to yourself is the laughable kind of talking to yourself. That's what makes the righteous laugh at the wicked. Rather, rather commit yourself to the steadfast love of God forever and ever. And what he's doing when he's when he's citing that, when he's saying, I trust in the covenant love of God, what he's saying is that I believe God keeps His Word. I believe that what God says will happen, even when circumstances suggest otherwise. And so, he's recalling the words of God to Abraham. He's recalling the words of God to Moses. He's recalling the the earlier words of God to um, Eli and um, and to him about being king. He's got all God's word on this. And he's choosing to trust God instead of his circumstances. And when he does that, he flourishes. And he says, I will thank you forever." Because you have done it. Or literally, I think, because of what you have done. And he treats this adjustment of circumstances as though it's already happened. He treats this righting of wrongs, this turning things right side up, as though it's a certain thing. And I will thank you because you do this. Because God is the one, He is the only one Who can make it right when it's wrong? He says, I will wait for your name because you are good or your name is good. When he's saying, I wait for your name, he's implying, wherever you see the name of God in the Scriptures, it really is trying to import His character and who He is. So, I will wait for who you are because you are good would be another way to think about this. He said, my circumstances aren't good, but you are good. And so David had to decide, which is more real? Is it more real, my circumstances, or the character of God? I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. And he sees himself, even though he's on the run right now, but he envisions, I think, a future day when he is in the presence of the people of God. And they are all rejoicing in what God has done to make wrongs right and to bring about the certainty of His promise. This uh, this phrase, in the presence of the godly, is is unique. I mean, you see the word godly in other places, but I never noticed... This word, I, I mentioned that God's steadfast love, or His covenant love, the the Hebrew word for that is Chesed. Okay, and so uh, the way that I remember that word, okay, is I pretend that I sneeze, right? Chesed, steadfast love of God. So someone says, "Then bless you," right? Okay, that gives me the right idea. Chesed, bless you. It's the it's the blessing or this covenant love of God. So I tell you that again because in the presence of the godly is the godly is translated ones who've experienced the steadfast love of God. Or I can't even say that. Too many too many sneezes going on there. Right? That they have received this covenant love of God. And all of them in the presence of God one day will be there because God keeps His promises. That's what He envisions. And so the unfolding of this psalm is a meditation on the fact that what I see right now isn't really reality. What is reality is a promise and steadfast love of God and I'm going to trust in that. Now there are I know in a room this size there are those of you who have experienced this kind of betrayal. This kind of badness from someone who is bad. That you didn't deserve it. And you you ended up being afflicted by it anyway. And there is a sense in which this psalm Helps you with that. Because you've got this evil in your life and you have to say, what am I going to do with this? And the answer is, I am going to wait for, the, for God to show up because He's good. You remind yourself of that. There are some of you who have other people in your life, maybe even the, the perpetrator of the evil against you looked like he got away with it, looked like it turned out great. and you're going to have to trust that God's going to turn that around and make those wrongs right one day and he promises he'll do that but ultimately this psalm is not merely about you know your problems or my problems ultimately this is a this is a sort of a higher level view of the the issue because what you have here is David As God's anointed king. David as God's covenant representative. He is the one upon whom God has said, He is mine. And he will be king. And his descendants will sit on his throne. And he will fulfill the promise of Judah that the scepter will not depart from uh, from him. And he is God's unique person. And he's betrayed like this. And he's mistreated. And he's uh, pursued. And evil is being done against him. And the question for David is the same question for us. Will God's purposes in the world fail because of evil? See, that's really what it comes down to because God's purpose in the world at this point in time hinged on David. And David is, David is with the righteous, fearing God and laughing. No way. There is no way that the purpose of God in this world will fail. That's what it means for him to trust in the covenant love of God. And what that does for you and me, you see, I mean, we all well want to make these Psalms our own. We all want to say, oh yes, I've got these problems and this psalm is about me and it makes it better. What this psalm does for us, though, is that it points us ahead to another covenant representative of God. To David's greater son. The one who actually fulfills the promises to David. His name is Jesus. Jesus. And it it reminds us, ahead of time even, that in fact, Jesus would experience this very thing. That evil men would rise up against Him. That they would lie about Him. That they would pursue Him. Except that they didn't get David, but they did get Jesus. You see, in Jesus on the night He was betrayed. He had dinner with his friends. They had a meal together and he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup represents the fact that I am God's covenant representative. That all of God's covenant promises hinge on Jesus. That's what Jesus understood. That's what he was telling us. So that it did look when they killed him like it was over, like God's purpose in the world failed. But three days later, he rose again. Three days later, three days later, God's promises triumphed. There was no way that the purpose of God in the world could fail because God raised Jesus from the dead. So whatever promises there are to David, they are nothing in comparison to God's promises to you because you have the resurrection of Jesus to refer to. You have the certainty of God's victory in His covenant representative of Jesus that you can believe in So that even in the worst circumstance, God wins. And that God can turn even the most evil crucifixion of the very best person into good for the world, you see. All of this finds its resolution in the person of Jesus. So that the final chapter isn't written. The final chapter is that God gave Jesus a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So that in the presence of the godly forever, the steadfast love of the Lord proves true as Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. And so... I tell you all that to say that, yes, in fact, this is a great song. This is a great encouragement to you not to trust your circumstances, but to trust the steadfast love of the Lord because He will certainly upend the evil and establish those who trust Him. He will certainly do that. And that... Word is even more certain to you because He has done that for Jesus. He has overturned the evil done by men to a good person so that there might be good done to evil people. Namely, they might be rescued from their sin. And so I invite you this morning, really, to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord, specifically though, the steadfast love of the Lord manifest in the person of His Son who died and rose again that you might trust Him that He will make everything right forever and ever. So that you can say with the psalmist, I will thank You forever because You have done it. I will wait for Your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. May God give us grace to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so concerned about the things in our lives, the the stuff that we see, it says it's out of control, the stuff that we see that hurts us. God, I pray that You would give us eyes of faith to believe Your Word, to trust in Your promise, to say with David, I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord forever. Father, we don't have the, the strength or the courage to do that ourselves. We need You to help us. So would You help us, I pray. In the name of your covenant, Son Jesus, Amen.